Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If either of you two love Katerina, oh. leave shall you have to court her at your pleasure. Oh, hideous pleasure. Mm-hmm. She's too rough for me. <laughs> I pray you, father... Is it your will to make a whore of me among these mates? Mates, maid? How mean you that? No mates for you unless you would have milder, gentler mold. If faith, sir, you shall have no need to fear. Such mating is not halfway to my heart. But if it were, doubt not my care should be to paint your face and use you like a fool. Hello and welcome to The Play's The Thing. You have joined us for William Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. This is our Act One discussion. And you just heard a little bit of the 1960s movie starring Elizabeth Taylor as Katerina. The film was directed by Franco Zeffirelli, who also did a version of Romeo and Juliet that we've lauded on the Romeo and Juliet podcasts. I have got a couple of guests with me today who I'm going to introduce. I'm going to introduce Matt Bianco first because a lot of you who have listened to this show have heard Matt a couple of times before. Matt is the COO of the Circe Institute. The Circe Institute is actually the platform provider for this podcast. Matt just finished his PhD work last month, Matt, at Faulkner University in the humanities. He and his wife, Patty, have two boys and a favorite. That's what he said. I didn't say that. Matt, welcome back to the show, mister. Thanks, Tim. And uh, congratulations. It's, it's doctor, sir. It's doctor. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the show, doctor. Um, and congratulations on the PhD. That was, that's a major accomplishment. You should be proud. Thanks. Appreciate that. Um, we're also joined by a new voice, Nora Ankrum. Uh, Nora helped found the West Virginia Shakespeare Festival and Alchemy Theater in Huntington, West Virginia. She's now Alchemy's executive director. 
When she's not on stage, she is a director for Classical Conversations, and she has an MA in Political Theory from Marshall University, and she is the mother to two children, which, Nora, I really like how you worded this in your bio, um, which you co-created with your husband. I really appreciate that creative copy. Thank you. Well, well done. And, wel- <laughs> Thank and you. welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Our pleasure. So, um, you guys, The Taming of the Shrew. Uh, this is one that, like, I have not seen The Taming of the Shrew in a long time. And I just jumped back into the text and I started watching a film version of it, the one with Elizabeth Taylor that we just heard which is actually really good. And it's really like Elizabeth Taylor is this really beautiful kind of classic beauty from the 1950s and 60s. And to have place her as Katerina, I think is like a really wonderful choice. But I kind of want to start actually with like big overall impressions of the play. If you guys are willing to share that before we jump a little bit into the text. Um, Matt, what do you think of Taming of the Shrew? Big picture. I lo- I I stupid love it. Like I love it in ways that probably people shouldn't. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't love it the way <laughs> I, I do. do but, but it's like I don't know. I think Tim, when in a previous show, you asked me what my Mount Rushmore was for Shakespeare plays, and I don't think Taming of the Shrew made the cut. But it it would be really close. Like it's just outside that the, really? the Mount Rushmore. I don't know. I've loved it. I've always loved it from the first time I read it every time after that, which is, that's not always the case with certain plays or books, right? Like sometimes I love them. Then I read them again. And I hate them. And then I love them again, or I hate them. And then I love them. And this was one that I've just, I don't know. I've loved it every single time. So what, what's the, what's the thing that keeps drawing you back to it? I, but mostly it's the interaction. It's, it's the, it's the Petruchio and, and mm-hmm. Katarina um, interactions and just the way all that unfolds. And, um, I don't know. I, I, there's just something, I don't know. There's something that I love about it. But Does it make hope. you laugh? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I, the whole play. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in the play that makes me laugh, but yeah, that, th- those two, their interactions. I think I like that kind of dynamic. I like, like, I love in, you know, much ado about nothing. I love the interactions between, um, uh, well, you know, you know what I'm talking about. I can't remember their names all of a sudden. And but, I can Beatrice. Yeah. 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 Beatrice. And, like, I love, I don't know. I love that kind of, the, the displays of wit and, con, you know, going after each other like that. It's always, attra- or it's always been interesting to me. It occurred to me that um, this play kind of gets us set up for Petruchio and Kate to meet, you know, like it's the act one is this long setup and we're really eager to get them to meet. And it strikes me as such a similar structure to Much Ado About Nothing. We want Benedict and Beatrice to meet. We're kind of afraid of, at least I am kind of like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen when they actually meet? It's going to be like a bloodletting or something. Um, And I think Shakespeare does a really good job of getting us to kind of lean forward and say, oh my gosh, I can't wait for them to meet. But we will not see them together on the stage until the next act. And that scene, I have to say, that's one of my favorite, it's maybe my favorite comedic scene in Shakespeare, the two of them together, but we don't really get to it until next week. So hold on audience. Nora, first impressions of, or, or your, your impressions of 
Taming of the Shrew. What do you think of this play? Um, well, if it's possible to be completely opposite, that is how I feel. <laughs> you <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> don't like the Taming of the Shrew. I don't. And I really, really want to. So I really hope um, my mind can be changed. I really want to love it. Um, but I just don't. In fact, I uh, I knew it was coming up as an assignment for my students this year. And I had every intention of picking a different Shakespeare. I was going to substitute it. Um, Are you prohibited, Nora, from taking The Taming of the Shrew out because of the curriculum? Well, I probably am now that I've said something about it super publicly. <laughs> the authorities, the authorities are listening in. I just wasn't going to tell anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. I wasn't oh, well, tell anybody. we've yeah. blown your cover. Well, I tell you what happened. We hosted the West Virginia Shakespeare festival, hosted a series of workshops and lectures this past summer, um, free to the public. And, um, our keynote speaker, actually, I, I hadn't spoken to him at all about my distaste for this play. And, uh, he brought it up in his keynote address as a play that was widely misunderstood and he thought um, mistreated and uh, should not be rejected so quickly. And I thought, well, there's my rebuke. I've got to figure out what I'm missing about this play. And do you remember, did the, did the speaker make the case or was that the sum total of the speaker's case that like it needs to be reconsidered? Yeah. in in the moment that was the sum total, but since then I've, uh, I've been in contact with him and said, all right, help me understand, help me see your point. And, uh, and he's, he's given, he sent me some of his thoughts and I'm, I'm trying to keep those in mind as we read through. So it sounds like you're kind of doing a little Shakespeare therapy perhaps is kind of what's (laughs) going on. Something (laughs) like that. Is that right? Yes. Um, Nora, tell us why you're not crazy about this play. So, uh, I mean, on the surface, it seems pretty, uh, well, you know, as an actress, first and foremost, it's not super exciting to think about uh, being tamed, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or to, uh, yeah, the the character of Kate uh, starting off as such a strong character and then seemingly ending up as um, tamed, or I guess mm-hmm. uh, in a little bit more in bondage or brainwashed or, I mean, that that's kind of how it appears on the surface to happen. Um, but I agree with Matt about uh, the tete-a-tete and the, the puns and the language. It's, it's incredibly clever and brilliant and it would be very, very fun to, to play those scenes. Um, so yeah, I hope I'm wrong. Okay. 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 Play those is... scenes, but not the fit, the final act. <laughs> those yeah. Scenes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> so maybe I can, um, I just want to say as a side note, it's almost as if the host of the plays, the thing kind of maybe knew how much the two of you liked and disliked this play and perhaps maybe brought the two of you on knowing that as a setup for some kind of lively discussion. It's almost as if that has happened. Wait, are we your Patricio and... <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I'll take it. That, that could be fun. It seemed the form seems to fit the content, which is... So- I have one challenge then to tame Nora, <laughs> but I didn't do this, Nora. I didn't do this. It's Tim Tim's did fault, this, Nora. Nora. It's completely Tim's fault. Game on. Okay. So 
let me try to give a little bit of a recap of what happens in act one for the sake of our listeners. Um, I'm actually going to start with the, the beginning of act one, even though this play has a preface, it has a two scene preface that if you have seen any of like the big movies about Taming of the Shrew, you're like, no, Tim, it doesn't have a preface. What it does. And it's a little bit peculiar and we'll talk about that in a second, but let's just jump right into the play. Our, our main character is Catherine or Katerina, who is the shrew. Um, so Kate is the daughter of Baptista Manola. She lives in Padua. She is kind of by reputation, um, very quick-tempered, She's like prone to violence. She is particularly hostile to anyone who might want to marry her. And we meet also in Act One, Petruchio, who will be her suitor. He's a gentleman from Verona, super egotistical, a little bit eccentric. He's also as quick-witted as she is. He has come to Padua in this great little phrase, to wive and thrive. That's kind of his goal. Um, Bianca is the sister of Kate. She's going to figure pretty prominently because she's the opposite of Kate. Very sweet spoken, unassuming, also beautiful. And also she has a big dowry. So the, the main kind of crux of the play is Bianca has a large dowry. Kate has a large dowry. The suitors to, to Bianca cannot marry Bianca if they win her because Kate's older and Baptista wants to marry Kate off first. Okay. So that's like the main crux of this play. So we've got these couple of suitors um, who show up eager to court Bianca. Father's like, nope, got to marry Kate off first. And now these two suitors are really eager to go find someone who would actually marry Kate. And they think that this guy, Petruchio, might be kind of like desperate enough to do it. Um, The two suitors' names are Grimio and Hortensio, uh, a little bit older. They're rivals, but they kind of become friends because they keep getting rejected by Bianca. And they're the ones who are really instigating this move to get Petruchio involved with Kate. So I think that's probably enough of a setup for act one. Let's talk though about these peculiar, I'm going to call them the Rip Van Winkle scenes. So we have this character, Sly, Christopher Sly, S-L-Y, who stumbles out of a bar at the very top of the preface of the show. And he's a little bit drunk and he falls asleep and he's discovered by these um, wealthy aristocrats. And they kind of decide they're going to play a joke on him. And so they put him in the, you know, the kind of like the wealthiest aristocrat's home. He wakes up and Christopher Sly's like, where am I? And they, and they start treating him as if he's an aristocrat. And it's actually, I think it's really clever and funny because Christopher Sly's like, I'm no, I'm not a wealthy man. I'm just a common man. They're like, oh, stop. We know who you are. And it culminates these kind of preface scenes with the performance of the play, The Taming of the Shrew, okay? And, 
like we kind of see Christopher Supply every once in a while going forward, but basically he disappears. Um, so here's my question for each of you. Why? Why did he do this? What, did, what, what is Shakespeare doing here? Like a preface? He never does a preface. Like maybe sometimes he'll have a monologue. At the beginning of Henry V, he has a monologue. He kind of sets things up. But why, can, can you guys like, justify the greatest playwright in the world, this strange decision that he made? <laughs> Nora, oh. come on, tell me. <laughs> I, no, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, as I was uh, rereading it this last time, I, I thought maybe I missed something where they came back around to these people at the end and kind of tied it all together, put a button on it, and that, that doesn't happen. Um, we know that Shakespeare likes the device of the play within the play. Um, and in other cases, he uses it to, uh, I don't know, I'm thinking of the one in A Midsummer Night's Dream, where he uses it to kind of uh, make hyperbole of the characters in the main play. Um, but I don't think we really see that here either. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I don't really have a good answer. Maybe it is to give distance. Maybe. Okay. Let me ask a another question if it is to kind of create distance between Shakespeare and his problematic subject matter does that mean that Shakespeare knows right that like is, is he admitting that this matter? is bad right that's that was my thought in fact when I was thinking about how I would handle it I thought maybe I could do that maybe I could like play into this whole this is just messing with Christopher Sly you know, like we know this is absurd. This is absurd. This is as absurd as you being an aristocrat, right? Uh, uh-huh, but uh-huh. I don't. I feel like that's probably taking it way too far and definitely undercutting Shakespeare. So I wouldn't let myself do that. You're saying, Nora, like if you had the opportunity to perform the play, to to produce the play, whatever, um, you've kind of got a little bit of an out. You could you could perform the preface to the play and kind of create some wiggle room for yourself. Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't love it, but yeah. 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 If, if Matt can't convince me, maybe that's what here I'll we do. go. Matt, an opportunity. <laughs> you say convince, I say tame, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a theory that I'll throw out in a second if you want, but yeah. I want to wrestle with the distance question for a second because that one interests me. So there's some cues within the text. There's an essay at the back. I have the folder edition and there's an essay at the back that goes into this in a little bit more detail, but I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of this actually until yesterday. I was, I was um, on a road trip with my son, my middle son, and I was reading this in preparation for today. And he said, Oh, did I ever tell you about the paper I wrote on the taming of the shrew back in high school? And, uh, and he, he hadn't, or if he had, I don't remember. And he's the middle child. So he's his story. Not even your favorite. Easy to forget. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so he starts telling me about this, like he was, he did a report on like the background information for Shakespeare's England when this, at the time this play was written. And, and um, so the essay in the back goes into this, but there's a line in act one um, in scene one where, you know, I think it's, it's as I think it's in the clip actually that you played at the beginning. Um, so she's yelling, you know, Katarina's yelling at those guys, right. Um, uh, Gremio and Hortensio. And then Gremio says, I think the father says, 
leave shall you have to court her at your pleasure. And Grêmio says, to cart her, rather. She's too rough for me. And um, and then there's a, there's a note, you know, about what it means to cart her. But my son apparently wrote a paper on this or did a presentation on this idea of carting her. And he was telling me that in England at that time, whatever, I don't know, but at that time it was common for men to do these kind of public displays of shaming to their wives when they were upset with them. And part Sounds of them was healthy. Yeah. Well, right. Um, bring back carding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just You're making just my kidding. case for me. I know. Right. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> I'm doing the opposite of what I'm trying to do here. Um, so uh, they were, they were doing this thing with carding, right. And, and publicly shaming. And in some cases, physically abusing the way their wives in public. And then he, I didn't see this in the essay, but my son was telling me that they even had these like contraptions over rivers where it was like the seat that they would strap the wife into. And then they would, the machine would dunk her into the river at the husband's control. What? And that, that's what he said. Yeah. And that, and that sometimes the husbands might be drunk enough or stupid enough that they would hold her under too long and they would, the wife would drown and it would kill them. What? Yeah. So he was saying, this is what my son was saying. He thinks that this play is actually Shakespeare going after that practice, right? And that he's trying to correct it. And he's doing so by showing an example of a man who tames his wife without ever laying a, a, a hand on her and without ever doing it publicly. That is his entire, his entire way of, of, you know, working out the, nuances of their relationship is to do it with words, but also to do rhetorically, um, but mostly privately, like in their home. And I mean, although sometimes there are, you know, haberdashers there present or whatever, right? But, sure, yeah. But he's doing it basically privately, not parading her through the street and not doing it physically. And that, so, so Shakespeare's trying to correct this bad practice by offering this alternative that in his day would be a huge leap, right? In right. our day, we might say, whoa, that's still bad. But respect, I mean, with relatively speaking, it was an advancement upon what was happening at the time. That's what my son thinks. And so if, if my son's point is right, then maybe that's the reason for the distancing, right? Is to, is to challenge the norms of his day without putting it, bringing it too close to home, right? Where mm-hmm. they, where they couldn't, they couldn't be mad at him, right? Because there's this, there's this distance. We've talked mm-hmm. on this show before um, about what a fine political line that Shakespeare had to walk in his day. I mean, you know, it, it, it's easy to look outside in 21st century America and see how politically loaded everything is. And while it is politically loaded and things are really devi- divisive, compared to Shakespeare's day, it's just not even on the same spectrum, you know? And it's almost like a testament to Shakespeare's genius that he stayed alive, that he didn't get thrown in the stocks and was able to actually produce kind of like meaningful theater without offending the wrong people. And he gets in trouble sometimes because people think think he kind of equivocates. Like, what is he actually saying in The Taming of the Shrew, you know? He seems pretty equivocal, but things like that are so interesting to me, Matt, that, yeah, maybe, maybe this is some way of kind of like him keeping his head on his shoulders 
and also providing some sort of a critique against like, I just can't believe what you're telling me about carding. Like, do you have any notion of how, like how frequently this is practiced? I have no idea. I mean, I don't know enough that they wrote an essay about it in the back of yeah. the Forbes edition enough that he puts a line referencing the, the practice in the text without any explanation. Right. It yeah. Just, it's just said. Meaning, meaning so people are going to know what he's talking about. Right. Is what you're asserting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Let's talk about Petruchio. What's he want? Money. Wiving and thriving. And thriving. <laughs> exactly what he says. I don't think he's mincing words there. I think he says what he means. He wants money and he wants, wants a wife. Nor is there anything more to Petruchio than... I'm asking you to defend the guy that you're probably not yeah. the craziest about in the camp. I'm not. I'm not the craziest. I I, I wonder if um, if he does start that way, he wants to wive and thrive. Um, but I, I wonder if he develops. I mean, I think he's he's got to, right? Or it's uh, it's not super interesting. Um, and I think he does. I think he does develop somewhat. And I think he does. I think you could probably make a case that he develops an affection or a true affection. Um, for Kate, not just to tame her and not just to conquer her, mm. um, but to, but to honestly, uh, have an affection for her. Um, it's still a hard one for me to, for me to swallow, especially outside of that context. But, um, yeah, I think eventually he does want more than that. I don't know how quickly though. I'm not sure. I think, uh, I think the first scene where they meet and they first have their back and forth, um, possibly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Possibly a little bit then. When he when he meets a woman who can stand up to him, who can right. hold hold her ground hold her ground with that with the wit. Yeah, and then kind of the same for her too, right? Like this is a guy who's not running from her, um, who's finally not afraid of her, like her father is and her sister and all of the other men in the town. Um, he actually stands up to her, and they they definitely match wits. It's a different kind of standing up to her too, right? Because Gremio standing up to her is cart her rather, but yeah, Petruchio like as I hide behind up. this thing, I'm going to stand up to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. But, but Petruchio standing up to her is not. It's not always derogatory. It's it's in fact it's hardly derogatory in that first scene with her, right? It's I mean, of course we're getting ahead of ourselves in the act, but um, but it's 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 much more complimentary along the way, right? He decides ahead of time that he's going to compliment her. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's I mean that's pretty brave of him, especially considering uh, all of the buildup to this meeting, right? Her reputation so it does, precedes her. <laughs> yeah. So it, it kind of takes a maybe a person with a giant ego to to enter that room at all. <laughs> does Kate n- need to be tamed? And I'm asking that. There's a couple of ways that I could ask that. I mean to ask that within the bounds of the play. I don't. I don't mean like. Um, does a young woman with a dowry who's too outspoken in you know like English society need to be tamed? I'm not asking that. I mean within the bounds of the play. No, I, I think if you read, if you read this straightforwardly, she's she's not a nice person. She, yeah. she certainly needs to be taken down a few notches for yeah. sure. I mean, she's manhandling her sister and um, throwing things, 
striking people and she is a viper's tongue. Um, yeah. I mean, she's not a nice person at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's not. She's not. <laughs> she throws a stool at the two suitors of Bianca. Yeah. Like she comes out roaring from yeah. the very top. Yeah. Um, so listeners, we are doing this on a zoom call and I can actually see Matt and Nora's faces and I'm noticing Nora in the background, you have a Rosie, the riveter poster, <laughs> right? I do. I do. How I'm going to use that as, <laughs> would you say Matt? How perfect? As, no, it is. It's perfect. Um, because it allows me to segue into this, uh, little story about, do you guys know the musical kiss me, Kate? Yes. No. Have you ever seen Kiss Me, Kate? I only know the music and the plot line. I haven't seen it. So Kiss Me, Kate is the story of the taming of the shrew. It was put on, it was a huge hit in the 1950s. And I learned a little bit about the background of the musical from this interview that I did with James Shapiro. James Shapiro wrote this um, book called Shakespeare in a Divided America. And he takes different kind of episodes in Shakespeare performance history. And he talks about how fraught these kind of like political moments were and in comes a Shakespeare performance. He talked about um, how Abraham Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth were both huge Shakespeare aficionados. And of course they interpreted him in completely different ways. So it's a great book. I'm actually like plumping the book, even as we talk. But what he said about Kiss Me Kate is was really fascinating. Kiss Me Kate is a big Broadway musical. And the original idea behind it, of course, the plot line came from The Taming of the Shrew. But the thing that was kind of going on in American culture at the time, think Rosie the Riveter, is that there are all of these women who are holding like really important jobs while sons and husbands were and uncles were away um, in Europe and in Japan. And now they all, all these men come back home and what do they want? Well, they want their wives and mothers back at home. Okay. But these wives and mothers are kind of like, I like my job. I like what I'm doing. I'm not so sure that I'm just like going to come right back home. So what Shapiro said was the whole production of that show is kind of meant to address this kind of friction between the genders that's happening in the United States after hmm. World War II. Hmm. And I thought that was so interesting. I just think that like, it's part of the reason why I just think Shakespeare is just so delightful and wonderful because it sounds like such a cliche. He's still speaking to us today, but he really is. You know, he really is. Okay. That's the end of my now, that was, I was actually going to ask one of the, I was actually going to ask that question about um, more modern uh, versions of the story and uh, where, where you've seen it and where you've seen it work um, and, and which elements are left in and which are not. Right. Um, so in part of my preparation for this play is the uh, really high scholar that I am. I watched the nineties classic, uh, 10 things I hate about you, which is also a retelling of the taming of the shoe. But, okay. So uh, how do they do yeah. it, Nora, in 10 things I hate about you? Uh, how did, so it's, I mean, 
Padua is the name of the high school, which is pretty fun. And then uh, Kat and Bianca are the sisters and uh, Patrick is Petruchio and it's, uh, it's high school. Uh, so it's, you know, silliness. Um, but yeah, she's a shrew and, and the sister is not allowed to date until the older sister dates. And uh, the guy that wants to date Bianca pays a big tough guy mm. gets around pain. There are several suitors involved for Bianca and they, they pay a guy to take out cats and he ends up falling for her. And, you know, it's a rom-com in the nineties. So who plays the lead? uh julia styles is cat okay yeah and um uh heath ledger yeah he plays uh patrick or petruchio okay yeah okay very nice (laughs) nice. i've never seen it maybe i should and it was like part of my preparation matt the uh there's a john wayne movie where he um goes he moves back to ireland he's a boxer i think and he's like i can't remember the name of it um, but he's, he's a boxer and then he, something happens and he, and he, he can't box anymore. So he has to go back to Ireland and, and then he meets a girl there that's Kate and he has to tame her. Um, and it's, it's one of those movies that like, I don't know, I, I actually don't, I mean, I like the movie, but I don't like what it does with Taming of the Shrew. Cause it, he, he's much more physical and aggressive in the oh movie. really it's like kind of but it's it's like presented as if that's normal you know uh-huh. um and maybe uh-huh. i don't know back in the 50s or something um mm. you know probably it was to some extent i don't know but i don't i don't like it it feels it feels he feels a little bit too aggressive to me i mean i like it as a movie but i don't like it as like a way of human interaction male female human interaction mm. you know mm. so that's tough so one. So if you're going to tell the story, I guess now, as, as I'm, I'm planning to in the spring, actually, um, are, are we saying that you, you definitely have to set it in the time period in which it is written um, and, and really, truly establish that world for this kind of message or device to really work? I think that's a great question. I think that's, I mean, it's almost like, nor isn't it like the first production question of anyone who like takes the dilemma of this place seriously? Yeah. Like, do do? I, right. Like, how do we do this? Um, because, you know, I've, I've been in several Shakespeare's and some of them have been traditionally set, but a lot of times we set them in different time periods or different uh, settings. You know, we did um, Twelfth Night and we set it in an uh, island resort, Jimmy Buffett, Margaritaville style <laughs> It was super fun. It, yeah, it, it made it a lot of fun. Um, or like a contemporary Julius Caesar political campaign, um, things like that. But I, I don't know how you do that with Shrew. I don't know how you do that outside of the context in which it's written, you know? I, the, the Elizabeth Taylor movie that we heard at the top of the show is very deliberately set back then. Yeah. And so in a way it kind of, um, I don't know, it puts, a, it puts a safety seal on the play. You know, you can say, oh my gosh, it's so shocking, but that's back then. That's the way that it was back then. I think if you're going to set it in a contemporary fashion, you've got like a few choices. So maybe one of the choices is, spoiler alert, Kate and 
Petruchio get together and Kate is kind of tamed. There's a way in which you could do it, maybe, Nora. I want to know what you think about this, where Kate's um, winking at the audience. Yeah, I I thought about that. And I thought about um, even the two of them winking at the audience together, Uh, the two of them coming to sort of a a mutual understanding. Um, And in the end, you know, they're... uh, Sorry, spoiler alert. In the end, they're the the only couple of the three that that are really truly in love, um, that really have come to an understanding of one another. And it's because of this battle of wits or this, you know, back and forth taming of maybe even taming of one another. Um, but I don't know if that really honors the text or not. I'm not sure. I don't I don't know that. Um, I mean, I don't I wouldn't necessarily take that path myself because I have a different way of approaching it. But but there is a scene. There is a line in act two that I think could. Could give you. The the, the privilege there or the credence. The, the out I'm looking for. Good. Yeah. Because, I want to hear this. Yeah, me too. Curious. <laughs> I'm taking it. Petruchio and Kate, ha- Kate have their their back and forth. They're one on one after he after Petruchio talks to Baptista, right? So Act Two, Scene One. Then they come back to the group, and yes. he's telling Baptista what happened. And but everybody's there, Grant, Remio, Tranio, whatever. And then Petruchio says, um, "In Act Two, Scene One, all the way down line three twenty one and down, he says, be patient, gentlemen. I choose her for myself.'" If she and I be pleased, what's that to you? Tis bargained twixt us twain, being alone, that she shall still be cursed in company. And so there's a there's a line there that says they they agreed privately beforehand that when they're together in public, they will have this interaction. But when they're privately, they won't. Now. We saw their private conversation, so we know, I mean, unless something got left out, we know that's not necessarily true. Mm. Right. But he says that there, and I, I'm pretty sure she's present in that moment, and she doesn't deny it, which is something she's certainly capable of having done. Um, so, so, Matt, can I say this back to you to see if I understand? What you're saying is they kind of agree there's going to be public and private for them as a couple. Privately they can be in love, but publicly they're going to kind of continue to kind of like perform this charade of their older selves. They're going to be antagonistic with each other. And so what you're saying is the conclusion of the play could look something like um, Kate publicly, you know, being tamed while at the same time winking to Petruchio, you know better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, yeah. they start out one way and then they flip it at the end, right? Uh-huh. For the public uh-huh. behavior. Yeah, I, I I would love for that to be the case. I just, uh, I don't know if I can stretch it that far. <laughs> Nor if it is the case, okay, I mean, like, I'm, I'm going to take up your cause. If it is the case, then you're kind of, like, aren't you kind of giving into this kind of, like, public acquiescence that it's okay? Yeah. Uh, like the taming I, is okay? Well, um well, the the scene at the end that I'm thinking of where they're in, you know, where they're in agreement, uh, he, he, all the, all the husbands, and maybe I'm jumping too far ahead, but all, all the husbands call for all the wives and none of them come except Kate. And that's the proof. And that's the, and he, and it's the fulfillment of a bet, right. Between the three husbands. Um, so, I mean, 
you could play it like uh, she's she's in on it too. She's just as mercenary as he is at that point. And he's, she's helping him win the bet. And, but she's willingly doing it. Not like she has no more brain. Um, But I I don't know. I mean, like, like you said, in that scene between the two of them, I feel like we would have, would have had to have seen something there. So unless there's a lot of acting happening between those lines. Mm -hmm. uh, It is curious though, why she doesn't correct him when he says it. I agree. I agree with that. Because she's not quiet. Yeah, right. She's not, she's not quiet before then or after. So is it because it's true or another possibility is that she wants this? Mm. I think that is a possibility too. I think that maybe they're both struck with each other in that conversation. Um, yeah. I mean, it happens pretty fast, but that's not unusual for Shakespeare. Not at all. Right. Not at all. And it's at least slower than Bianca. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't trust you. I love you. <laughs> right, right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I saw a production of Much Ado About Nothing, and I'm going to give a brief recount of the plot of that play, which is such a great idea. I'm going to take us totally out of this play and into another play. There's a kind of... Um, Benedict and Beatrice are the main couple, and there's this secondary set of characters... Claudio and Hero in Much Ado About Nothing, Claudio is fooled into believing that Hero is cheating on him. And on their wedding day, he publicly shames her in front of everybody. She's completely innocent, completely shames her. And that, I think, happens in Act 3, halfway through the, halfway through the play. And then at the end of the play, Benedict and Beatrice get married, and so do Hero and Claudio. But it's like really unsettling. You're like, wait, Hero got completely humiliated publicly on her wedding day by Claudio. And now she's just going to kind of get together with him and everything's going to be okay. Really? This is really going to work? So I saw it at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. What they did was they kind of like took us all the way up to the wedding scene they had Benedict and Beatrice get together, of course, but then they had in the very final kind of snapshot of the play, Hero and Claudio are on opposite sides of the stage. And you can tell, you can see on Hero's face, this is never going to work. And the, so the ending of the play is very bittersweet. It's not a reunion between two couples, but it's one couple gets together and the other couple actually kind of like is, we know they're going to kind of play out the damage done in act three. I thought it was fabulous. I thought it was so fabulous because it didn't gloss this kind of horrible event. That's really, it's for me, it's really hard to forgive Claudio for that. I'm like, man, that's like an insurmountable obstacle you just set up. So I really appreciate contemporary, not every contemporary telling, but contemporary tellings that kind of um, deal with the subject matter faithfully and yet in some way acknowledge things have changed. In a lot of ways, things have changed in really positive ways since Shakespeare wrote these things. So I think during the course of these podcasts, hopefully we can talk about different opportunities that we might see in the text to kind of, I don't know, 
play the taming of the shrew in a way that is both faithful, but maybe a little bit more, what is the word that I'm looking for? Palatable. Palatable, gentle, something like that. You know, so what you're saying though, there's something to that about like the, um, the importance of obviously seeing other people play with the text, right. And play with their, with their characters. And, um, I remember, I remember reading this with high schoolers, 11th graders, and they, they, they read the play and they thought there's no way, there's no way that that, that can be overcome. Right. I'm t- still talking about much to do about nothing. Sorry. There's no way that, Cla- that the damage between Claudio, Claudio and, and Hero, Hero could be overdone. Yeah. Overcome. Then we watched the Kenneth Branagh version, which has that guy from House, from the TV show House. I yeah. His name, that actor. That guy's a horrible actor. And everything he's ever done, he's horrible. I don't know why anybody. Wait, really? He's bad. Part. He's bad. And he plays that part. And it's completely unbelievable that he meant it. That he oh. meant any sort of repentance, oh. right? Because he's such a bad actor. And, oh. and yet, and yet that it it well, or or because the lines just don't allow for it, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, and then but then it ends like as if it's all been overcome, right? And so it's Kenneth Branagh's version doesn't deal with it either way. It doesn't give you a believable repentance, nor does it give you some way of reckoning with that, right? That I saw that I noticed that I caught. And it and it further convinced my students that the play's a failure, right? Because it's not can't be done. It can't be done, uh. right? Then we went to the U- University of North Carolina School of the Arts or something like that in Greensboro, North Carolina. And we saw a live production of it there. And I don't know who that kid was. I don't know who, what the, his name was, what the actors was, nothing. But it was the most convincing, most believable scene of repentance I've ever seen in my entire life. And I became absolutely convinced that it was possible wow. for there to be genuine reconciliation there because of the actor wow. and the way he pulled it off. So oh. that's the thing, right? Like I, I read it with my kids and I thought it's not believable. It's not, gen- it's not genuine repentance. It's not believable repentance because I couldn't imagine myself repenting in that way as believably. Right. And then I saw an actor do it. Couldn't see it there, but then I saw another actor do it who was able. And I don't know, I thought it was pretty brilliant. So I, that, I mean, the same sort of thing could be coming up here too, right. With these and every play, right. Where, where something looks like it's happening too fast. Right. That's true. But it's hard That's to really say how genuine, the, how genuine the interaction might be. Hmm. But the actors orbit with the people, you know, I mean, the actual Petruchio and, and Katarina, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think if you don't, if you don't embrace all of it, I mean, truly embrace all of it, uh, you certainly do a disservice, I think, to the author, but also um, you you miss the opportunity to really discuss the, uh, you know, the implications, the, the cultural moments, all of those things, um, it, by, by trying to gloss over it too much, right. Or by trying to make it, um, less than what it is, less severe. So, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do that for sure. You guys, I feel like we've done a good job of kind of like opening up, opening up the problems of the play. And let's be honest, act one is set up. I mean, there's like, there's wonderful lines. Even those first two scenes with Christopher Sly, I think are very, they're clever. Um, 
But I think that the real fireworks of The Taming of the Shrew begin in Act Two. So I'm going to say, let's consider our job done for Act One. We've opened up the problems of the play. And the next time we record, we're going to dig in a little bit more to the actual, to the characters and the plot and the themes that Shakespeare is establishing. Um, so I want to thank both of you guys. I want to thank our audience for joining us for Act One. Matt, you got something else, mister? Well, I, just a question. Yeah, please. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I have another theory about the induction besides this, the distancing. Oh yeah. Do you want to talk about that today or do you want to save that for the next? I'd like to, I'd like to hear it today. Could you set it up for us? Okay. So, um, I'll try, I'll, I'll brev, since brevity is the soul of wit, I want to say, (laughs) um, Shakespeare says, um, (laughs) I'll see, I'll see if I can be brief here, but, um, so it, there's, there's a, there's a great line in, in Hamlet, a line that I love in Hamlet where Hamlet tells his mother, assume the virtue if you have it not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. I wonder if this play is not I as the person I'm assuming a virtue that I do not have, but rather the flip side is I am treating somebody with a virtue that they do not have. And in the Hamlet play, the idea is if I assume the virtue that I do not have, then I will come to kind of conform to virtue, it. right? Mm. And so the idea here is what if, if I assume a virtue in another person, then they begin or assume, assume a certain quality in another person, then they begin to live that out. Right. So there's a sense in which if Disney does this a lot with princess movies, right. Um, you take this girl and she's like, she's like an uneducated, unkempt, un, unsophisticated, whatever American. And then you go put her in this, in, she finds out she's actually a princess and you go put her in this, castle in some made-up country in Europe, and then suddenly she begins acting and behaving and being a queen, right? Um, so I think, I wonder if there's something like that going on, right? The induction scene begins with a guy who's a piece of garbage, mm. for lack of a better term, and then they treat him like a lord, and he begins embracing that pretty yeah, quickly. This is so interesting. Right? That's where you're going. Then the, the Taming of the Shrew then is a play put on for him showing that happening huh. in others. Um, and so then, so then he, Petruchio, treats Kate like somebody who is a good, loving wife. And she begins acting like a good, loving wife. Mm. Hmm. And, he, and he treats her in ways that her father never does, right? I think we could talk about this as we go on. Oh, that's right? true. I'll flesh out the theory. But the husband, I mean, the father, Baptista, I think, abuses her. And I think in every place that Patricio appears to be abusing her, he's actually showing her more love in that area than her father ever did. But huh. we'll, we'll flesh all this out. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, right. Um, so I think that, I think that Patricio is t- t- treating her like, she needs to be treated, but then he starts acting in doing so. He begins acting like a loving husband, which then turns him into a love. So he's then assuming mm. the virtue that he doesn't have. And then it turns him into that kind of a virtuous person. Right. Um, and then I, I think you could see this kind of fleshed out in positive and negative regards with, with a lot of the different characters. So I think, I think that might be what's going on, right. They're treating Christopher Sly in that way. And then they're presenting him with a play where that is happening with all the characters. I, re- I really like that, um, especially and definitely want to flesh that out more as, as we go throughout the play. Um, 
because there are some places where I'm not sure it works, but um, I like it mostly because it's the players acting as uh, well, Petruchio is the players then. Right. So they are the ones we are here. We are teaching you this lesson. Mm. We are showing you this thing. So it doesn't have to be virtuous or not. It doesn't have to be pure or not. Right. It's, I mean, like you could argue that these people have like kidnapped this drunk guy and, and they're kind of abusing him a bit. Right. Um, And maybe it's for his own good, maybe whatever, but uh, you don't have to make all of those same judgments then if it's, if they are the Petruchio or Petruchio, Petruchio is them. Right. Mm -hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that really well. Yeah. I will tell you this though, if, if you need an out from it, and there's, there's probably plenty to find, but I will tell you this, that I did a class on, um, on justice and we had to read this play for an example of domestic justice. This is pulled straight from, uh, what's his name? Mortimer Adler's, um, the great books of the Synopticon. Is it Mortimer? Yeah. The Synopticon. Right. Anyways. Um, so we had to read this play as an example of domestic justice. And then I had to write a paper on it. And, um, and in my paper, I made this argument for this this idea. I, did, I don't remember talking about the induction very much, but it was mostly about this idea of like treating somebody the way, a certain way, and then they become that. And my professor wrote a, a, his note on it afterwards was, um, I've never heard this theory before. This is, com- you completely made this up. Nobody's ever talked about it in this way before. I have no idea where you got this from, whatever, but you know, Here's your grade. Um, and okay, it was wow. basically like, this what is the most novel, get? innovative thing I've ever heard, and it doesn't belong in writing. Well, essentially, was what he said. Although he gave me what? a good grade on it. But yeah. And he, but he did give you a good grade. Yeah. Yeah. Did you call it, um, did you call it fake it till you make it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fake it till you make it. Um, yeah. Virtue concepts in Shakespeare's <laughs> The Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> You guys, I want to close the show with a song from Kiss Me, Kate. I'm not going to even name it, but I am going to tell you who it's by. Cole Porter wrote the song. Uh, I want to thank both of you for joining me on the show. As always, everybody, you can find us and participate in our discussion by uh, joining the Close Reads discussion page on Facebook. Uh, And we'd love to hear from you there. Please join us next week for Act Two. And until then, enjoy Cole Porter's... Well, I'm not going to name the song. Just enjoy the song. Just remember what the immortal bard once said. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. Unquote. So remember this. The girls today in society go for classical poetry. So to win their hearts, you must quote with these Aeschylus and Euripides, but the poet of them all, who will start them simply raven, is the poet people call the Bard of Stratford-on-Avon. Brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and the women you will wow Just to claim a few lines from Othello And he'll think you're a heck of a fella If your blonde won't respond when you flatter her Tell her what pony called Cleopatra And if still to be shocked she pretends well Just remind her that all's well That ends well 
brush up your Shakespeare and they'll all kowtow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.